The title of this evening's talk is <clears throat> Spiritual Urgency, or in Pali, Sambhaga. What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a re- this particular retreat? beginning this evening's talk with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on in us for as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is this thing called death? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world, with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to spiritual practice? And again, why am I here in this retreat? Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather, these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is Samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually, it's a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist teachings, uh, in the texts, the force or the energy of Samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And the classical texts go on to say that Samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So, Samvega is the urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. It's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or any obsessive quality but rather it's a quality of mind and heart that very often comes out of some degree of 
understanding the natural laws of the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. So let's look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round of daily life. Others of you have may felt a sense of urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in some of its subtler forms. And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. And for some of you, the sense of urgency, sambega, may be experienced through the feeling of the enormity, or maybe even the subtleties, of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life, the suffering in life from this particular perspective, in general, or maybe more specifically, in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or directly experiencing bias or prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may have also experienced a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way. That maybe there's another way. and an urge then to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it may be an emotional state that is somewhat difficult or disturbing until it finds a very clear and healthy direction to connect to. And one of the wonderful attributes of this stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to connect to. And I think it's very important to note at this point that continuing all along the way of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own 
body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or happenings that I'm just simply an observer of such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world and the often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice and outside of our formal practice, our formal practice times. And for me, it's the movement of my heart to let go deeper into my practice. It's this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When Samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an in very inspired heart-mind, a passion for spiritual practice, we could say. Something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, maybe what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. This is one of the wonderful aspects of all of us being here right now. Both yogis, all of you, Dhamma students and teachers alike. Living in a practice community such as this, even if it's just for a short while, we move and inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice? There's a beautiful account of how Prince Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. 
Maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical. Considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in. Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches, ease, and the comfort of his existence to search for the truth, true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships, the suffering in life that he witnessed as he took as he took in these four very common aspects of life, common events and aspects of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and familiar habits of his life. Isn't it really the same case with all of us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, We've reacted, reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time, what we do to various aspects of our aging bodies, or even by pretending or believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that we respond. We respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha, by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or anger or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things, stirring in the sense of samvega, If we generally don't perceive them as such, 
isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that, in fact, render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can actually even happen in relationship to the Buddha's teachings. We may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual, emotional, or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we look carefully, constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is. Which, simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we'll begin to sense and see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this suffering, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths, which, put simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third noble truth, the truth that, in fact, there is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to this predicament. The solution being to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha. That each of you are engaged in walking along at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life and in this very retreat. As some of you have experienced and know, sometimes quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one or more of these truths can show up. For instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning, or clinging, and the self-identification that's embedded 
in each of these habitual reactive habit patterns. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long-accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty or a weeping child or in relationship to the, the distress of someone that you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to the unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness or bodily discomfort or myriad other flavors of experience. With any of these experiences having the power to startle us, meaning to promote promote a reflective response and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available to each of us at any moment. So, for instance, a moment or successive moments of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of things. Or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal. It's all anatta. Mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally changing, arising and passing according to conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we're often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering, or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. We each have many stories many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a, of a spiritual life and, of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that, in fact, often exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of Samvega. And it's often a part of what I hear from students during practice interviews at times. 
There are a number of <clears throat> wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. And the stirring either being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arhats, the enlightened disciples, or by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has uh, brought them to be dwelling for sometimes lengths of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus who are practicing in those, man bhikkhunis, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. So I'd like to share a few of these encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. (coughs) And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, he kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhu, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency for him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the Deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. A meaning not necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things and food and various objects and various experiences. And the deva goes on. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off that sticky dust, so a bhikkhu a yogi, strenuous and unmindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place shortly after the the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. And his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been very strongly encouraged to attain arhantship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin during the next rains retreat. Ananda had gone to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to meditate. But when people in the area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt uh, that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. 
Well, the forest-dwelling deva who lived there, aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could only succeed if Ananda attended as an arahant, came to provoke and inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. I picked this particular dialogue because though we're not in the same position as Ananda uh, was uh, at that time, we're certainly often uh, quite caught up, we're certainly often quite seduced by the seeming necessity to engage in the hullabaloo of various circumstances both externally and also internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice, and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear not to neglect what needs to be attended to, of course, but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So one, another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling at Vasali, or this was a bhikkhuni, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling at Vasali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. Then that bhikkhuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments and gongs and music coming from Visali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many of those who yearn for your state, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. 
then that bhikkhuni stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is <clears throat> regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva who also inhabited this same woodland out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of some vega in him spoke, to, spoke these verses to this bhikkhu. Because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, in meaning uh, having relinquished or having let it, letting, having let go of a, attending to things as permanent as self, as desirable because they're pleasurable, having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, said the bhikkhu, or said the uh, deva, meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics, with a careful attention, attending to them as impermanent, not self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts in the teacher, and in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from, the, from his alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down into a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. When the deva who lived in that same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject, from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate. This bhikkhu, instead of meditating on the scent, is, is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And the title of this uh, little uh, verse, sutta verse, is called The Thief of Scent. And the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage. I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, 
Why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds, uh, which when I first read it was quite a surprising response. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems, in fact, that things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament causes, crosses time and cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some sense of timidity or hesitation or fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse some vega. And in speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta, he says, rouse yourselves, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease or dis-ease, the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourself, sit up. Resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors 
to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Don't waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish, to the realms of suffering. And the Buddha goes on to say, negligence is a taint, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency, samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth and aging and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourself in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth. Which from this perspective we could say is a gift, in fact, that confirms our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. And then from this gift of the first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside experience or some outside other being, but that it's coming from in here, in here in the craving and the clinging and the fear present in our own mind. And then the Buddha in his great confidence and coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example confirms that there's an end to suffering. That there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila in Pali. Concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy and happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities 
really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. Our predicament, in fact, has a practical solution. A solution that's within the power of every human being. A solution that those of you here have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But most importantly, that you've come to know or are coming to know out of your own direct experience, through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. A story that, when I first read it, I found to be very inspiring and invoked a spiritual urgency in me. And that was many years ago. And it continues to move me every time I read it. So I'd like to share a few excerpts from a chapter uh, called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I was startled. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel. I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruitwood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush for four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It felled the forest. 
moved the fields and drained the pond, the world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to rememorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading. But he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds. Let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should. And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will.
in this light of Samvega. It feels appropriate uh, to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of Samvega in them, to exhort them to keep going on the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from the Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta. And I found it to be quite inspiring, so I'd like to share them with you. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I'm about to cross over. This is my last teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. As Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem, The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who's flung herself out of the grass, the one who's eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who's gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down into the grass. How to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last? And too soon? Tell me, What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life?
And let's sit together quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.